Good morning, and thank you very much for being here. A lot of other places you could be on a Saturday morning. Thank you for giving your time to this. Uh, last night, I was talking with Brad about his early days in the ministry. He was relaying a story about one of his first hospital visits, and he had gone into the hospital to visit a member that was not doing well. In fact, the member needed a blood transfusion, and uh, as it turns out, uh, they had lost the gentleman's records, and they really were not able to help him, and so as they were frantically moving about the room, the doctor said, uh, Pastor, if you would please just stay with the patient, make sure that everything is okay, and um, they went to look for the records, fade in, fade out, the doctor comes back, Brad says to the doctor, well, good news, bad news. And the doctor says, well, what's the bad news? Brad said, well, the bad news is that uh, the patient has died. The patient that needed the blood transfusion has died. And the doctor said, well, what's the good news? And Brad said, well, as he was passing, uh, he wasn't thinking about himself. Uh, he was only thinking about other people. Uh, he was giving advice and he was giving encouragement to me. And the doctor said, well, what was he saying? And Brad said, he just kept saying, be positive, be positive. <laughs> I suppose you're familiar with the children's game Marco Polo, which is played in a pool. One child will close their eyes and then the other children will be in the pool and the child with their eyes closed will say Marco, the other children will say Polo, and then the child with his eyes closed will move in the direction of the other children based upon what the child hears. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you that these men think enough of your word and they think enough of the gospel, Lord, that they would be here. And so, Lord, I'm very encouraged to see them this morning. I would pray in Jesus' name that you would please uh, give them encouragement this morning, but more than that, I would ask, Lord, that you would please teach them by your word and by your spirit how to be encouragers uh, for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the year 2008, we sent our son Parker away from New York City to the state of Georgia uh, to live with my wife's parents, a little town north of Rome, Georgia, called Armerchi. We sent him there for his senior year for two reasons. Number one, so that he could gain the Hope Scholarship, become a Georgia state resident, and go to the University of Georgia, which was his dream. And secondly, he wanted to play one year of football. He had never, as a homeschooler growing up in New York City, played football, and he wanted to play one year. When he arrived, having never played football before, he realized that it was a little bit more difficult than he thought that it was going to be, and so he became discouraged. And I, as a good father, did something for him. I purchased three used, inexpensive DVDs, Rocky, Rudy, and The Pursuit of Happiness. I mailed them to him all at the same time. If you haven't seen these movies, you only need to watch one of them because they are the same movie. And it is a story of someone who is discouraged, but yet receives no help from the outside, a person who picks themselves up by their own bootstraps and presses on. Marvelous movies, wonderful stories, but sadly, sometimes in the local church, we treat one another as if the other person is Rocky Balboa. 
that they know what they need to know and they should be expected by themselves to pick themselves up and to press on. God, in his wisdom, knows that we need more than that. And so in his word, he gives us a command, an imperative, that we are to talk to one another, and as we are talking to one another, that we are to encourage one another and to build one another up. So with that in mind, I would ask, please, that you would turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. We're going to be studying the subject of encouragement, biblical encouragement, and hear what the Apostle Paul has to say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. He starts off speaking to the church at Thessalonica and says in verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. First thing that I would like to point out here is that there is a, a beautiful piece of irony in the passage in that the Apostle Paul simultaneously commands the people to encourage one another as he is encouraging them, and that is in that last little phrase, just as you are doing. You know what that is? That is encouragement. You are doing a good job. Continue to do a good job. Now, you need to encourage one another, but I want to encourage you and let you know that you're already doing that. So that's very artful, very ironic, but, but, it, but, it's, but, it's, but it's a great strategy in getting them to encourage one another and letting them know that they are already doing that. The other thing that I want you to see in this text is that if we are to be encouraging, uh, we are godly. Uh, to be godly means to be like God, and so when we look at the biblical doctrine of encouragement and we look at our triune God, we see that he is an encourager. So, for example, in the book of Romans chapter 5, 15 verse 5, it speaks of our Heavenly Father as the God of all encouragement. You want to look like your father. Your father is an encourager. So when we encourage, we are like the first person of the Trinity. We are also godly when we encourage one another in that we are like the third person of the Trinity, and that is the Holy Spirit. Because the word encourage there is the Greek word parakaleo, which, by the way, is the correct mispronunciation of that word. Parakaleo looks like and sounds like and is a derivative of the same word that Jesus uses in the upper room discourse when he says that the helper, the advocate, the paraclete or parakletos shall come. And so the Holy Spirit is an encourager who comes alongside us. And by the way, to encourage simply means to come along the side of someone for the purpose of helping them. God our Father is an encourager. The Holy Spirit is an encourager. But the main thing that I want you to see in the text is that encouragement, biblical encouragement, is rooted in the second person of the Trinity, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice how Paul builds up his argument here. He starts off in verse 9 by stating something which is really good news and deserves a sermon all its own, and it says, for God has not destined us for wrath. That is, we as believers are not destined for wrath. 
Uh, simply put, you're not going to go to hell. There are some people that are going to go to hell, but you who are in Christ, you are not one of those people. Hell is a real place. There will be people that are going there. But if you want to be encouraged off the bat, you just need to concentrate on the fact that you are not going to suffer eternal conscious punishment in eternal damnation in hell, but you are, on the other hand, as it says, you are not, God has not destined us for wrath, but by contrast, to obtain salvation. And how is this salvation, this eternal salvation, obtained? It is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at this point, there might be a temptation on your part to check out and say, this is the point in the sermon where there must be a mandatory gospel presentation for if he is Christ-centered and he is gospel-centered, he has to in some way insert the gospel into what he is saying, seeing as how he doesn't know who he's talking to, and there might be some people in the room who are unconverted, but even if everybody in the room is converted, you still need the gospel because the gospel is of first importance, and so the gospel must be included in every sermon, and I agree with that, but that is not what is happening here. I am not just in a perfunctory way, putting the gospel in right here. But what I am saying is that the biblical doctrine of encouragement is propelled and, and it is deeply anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For if you follow Paul's argument, it says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but by contrast to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how is it that he brought us salvation, it says in verse 10, who died for us, who died for us. Now that is the heart of biblical encouragement, that we had one who was perfect, who left the splendor and glory of heaven and came to the filth and obscurity of earth and was born of a virgin and in our place lived a perfect life and then was our substitute, the just for the unjust, going to the cross for us and dying a death which we deserved to die, and there he bore the wrath of God. Our sins were placed upon him, and for six hours on Mount Calvary, holy God looked down at Christ, and as Martin Luther said, Jesus Christ is the greatest sinner that ever lived. He bore in his body our sins upon the tree. He never committed a sin, but all of our sins were placed upon him, and all of God's wrath was poured out on him, and it was finished. He died for our sins. And so that is how we obtain salvation. That is how we obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we read, for God has not destined us for wrath, but by contrast to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us and is raised, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or sleep, we might live with him. He takes two extremes here. One of them is that you're dead. One of them is that you're alive. It is explained in euphemistic language, being asleep or awake. But it really doesn't matter circumstantially what happens on this earth, because ultimately what? We are going to be with him. Now, if we are just narrowing down what uh, is good or bad or what is desirable or not desirable in terms of what will happen in this life, well, then the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is 
irrelevant or it's of little help or it's not enough help to overcome what happens in this life. And Paul is saying, really, what is important is not what is going to happen between now and the time that we flatline, but what's going to be important is that we obtain salvation forever, eternally, and in light of eternity. What he is saying here is that we have the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Ultimately, every little thing is going to be all right. What follows is the most important word in the text. He does not next say, we might live with him, encourage one another and build one another up, but he inserts the word therefore. So the, the, the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of encouragement is not refrigerator art that you can just take this 11th verse, make a nice you know, wall hanging or, or, or do beautiful artwork and stick it on the refrigerator and be reminded to encourage one another and build one another up. No, Paul throws the word therefore in there, and that is what gives the passage punch. That's what gives the passage life. It is in light of the gospel. It is because of the gospel that we are to encourage one another, come alongside one another for the purpose of helping one another, and build one another up, quite literally, to edify one another. Do do you understand what I am trying to say? That it is the gospel which roots and propels the doctrine of encouragement. Um, Because ultimately, in light of eternity, we are able to encourage one another in light of the gospel, and for Christians, everything that happens ultimately is encouraging, and there is nothing that is not encouraging. Conversely, and and I'm not trying to be funny when I say this, I don't know anything that I can say to someone who is not saved, which ultimately would be encouraging. You remember the scene in Schindler's List when the Jews are on the train and Schindler takes the hose and he is pouring water on there in these people in mercy just to give them a a, a drop of water and to cool them off. Ultimately, that's not encouragement. I mean, it, it is an attempt at that, but these people are going to the gas chamber. The plane is going down. The pilot has announced that all of the engines are out. The plane is going to crash. What can you say to the person who is sitting beside you which would be of some encouragement? Aren't these peanuts refreshing? I don't know. There's nothing that you can say to a damned man who is going to be in eternity in hell forever which would be of encouragement. Conversely, anything that can be said to someone who ultimately is saved, regardless of how poorly things are happening in the here and now, is encouraging. And that's what Paul says in light of the fact that Jesus died for our sins and that whether we live or whether we die, we will be with him. Therefore, in light of that, with that in mind, with that as your propeller, you are to speak to one another. And as you are speaking to one another, encourage one another and build one another up. For if you do not include in the heart and the content of your encouragement to other people, the gospel of Jesus Christ, really all you are doing is Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. You are just inflating people 
you are manipulating people, you are giving a halftime speech or a pat on the back, or you're telling them how to catch more flies with honey than with vinegar, or it's a Tony Robbins seminar is what it is. If you do not have the gospel as your propeller, you're just giving empty words which ultimately go nowhere. But we have the gospel, and since we have the gospel, then we can speak to one another And we can encourage one another with something which is ultimately meaningful and something which is meaningful in the here and now. And so, objectively, I could end the talk right now by saying what is said in the second verse of the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, we should never be discouraged. And I've always thought, you know, that's kind of a a hokey line, because there are times that we do get discouraged, but, but that's not what the hymn is saying. The hymn says we should never be discouraged, and truthfully, in light of eternity and what Christ has done for us, and ultimately where we will end up, we never should be discouraged. I mean, think about what we have. We have the perfect Word of God. but We have the church. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We've been reconciled. We've been redeemed. Most importantly, we have been joined to Christ. We are joint heirs with him. I mean, we have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is no objective reason why anybody should ever be discouraged. So why then, if we should not be discouraged, do we get discouraged? Well, you know the answer to this. First of all, you get discouraged most importantly, and primarily from you. You discourage you. You are, you are a liar. You lie to yourself more than you lie to anyone else. You, you, you do not keep an eternal perspective. Uh, your affections get caught up in this world. We, 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 we have sinful hearts, which bring us discouragement. We live in a discouraging world, I mean, here we are with one another. Everybody's got an open Bible. We are in a church. We're listening to words about Jesus Christ. You're going to get up tomorrow morning. You're going to go to work. And the person in the cubicle next to you is going to be taking God's name in vain. They're going to be speaking about degrading things which they did to women. You, you, you are going to see debauchery all around you. We live, you turn on the television. There's really nothing that you can watch which will not be spiritually discouraging. You, you, we have an adversary, the devil, that is seeking to devour us. We have ourselves, we have the devil, we have the world. We, 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 we have sickness. People who are not physically well tend to be discouraged. You have family members. Maybe you're here, you love the Lord. Maybe you're going to go home to a wife or to a sister that is very spiritually discouraging. Or, 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 or then you have this, this, this nebulous thing called depression which I cannot explain, but I myself have gone through three separate times, and I can tell you it is the worst agony I've ever gone through. It is horrid. It is excessively discouraging. You take the human experience that when God said to Adam, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die, he was telling the truth. And Job put it this way, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. We live in a discouraging world, and we are by nature discouraging. So it ought to be pretty simple at this point. I mean, God is an encourager. We have objective reasons for being encouraged, but we are discouraged, 
And God says, in your relationships with one another, talk to one another, and as you are talking to one another, encourage one another and build one another up. That seems pretty simple. I mean, I haven't said anything up to this point which is in any way profound theologically, nor will I say anything because I don't know anything that's profound theologically. It's just pretty simple up to this point, which begs the question, why then, if we have people that are discouraged and we are commanded to encourage one another and we have good reason to encourage one another, do we not encourage one another? And I think there are several reasons why we don't. First of all, I think that people who have never been encouraged, uh, they do not know how to encourage others. Several years ago, I was preaching on a Sunday morning. My eight-year-old son was sitting in the front row. As an illustration, I brought him up on the platform. I think my sermon on that Sunday morning was God speaking from heaven about Christ and to Christ. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. As an illustration of that, I brought my eight-year-old son up onto the platform, and I said, Parker, I want you to know that I love you. And I want you to know that you mean the world to me. But not only do I want you to know that, I want these people to know that. I want you to know I am pleased with you, and I am delighted with you, and I love you. And he sat down, and that was the end of the illustration, and I preached the rest of the sermon. It was just a minor point in the sermon. I never gave it another thought. And I'm standing at the door as the people are leaving, and there is a woman in her mid-80s who leaves the church that day. This is a very unemotional woman. She shakes my hand, and there are tears rolling down her cheeks, and she said, Pastor, when you brought that boy up onto the platform, that broke my heart because my mother and my father both lived and died, and never once did either one of them ever tell me that they loved me. So I think it would be difficult, and we're still commanded to do it, but I think it would be difficult to encourage if you have never been encouraged. Uh, other people do not encourage. Uh, they, they have nothing against encouragement, but they just never get around to it because, quite frankly, all they think about is themselves, and so they are so consumed with themselves, they don't ever think about other people. Other people don't encourage because they have seen abuses in flattery and manipulation, and they refuse to be sucked into that. The other people do not encourage because they are in such pain and they are hurting themselves so badly that, that they don't find the strength to encourage other people. To you, I would say, remember the Lord Jesus Christ, that when he was on the cross, he was in more pain and more agony than anyone who ever lived. And yet, what did he do with his few words upon the cross? He encouraged others. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. His words in agony were used to encourage other people. Some people do not encourage because, quite frankly, and you'll never admit this, but it's the truth, you're jealous of other people. And if you acknowledge the good in them, then that will mean that you are, by definition, inferior to them and you cannot acknowledge that. And so, therefore, a word of congratulations or a word of building the person up can't be done. But there's a million reasons why we don't encourage. I think, I think it's, it's primarily that we're consumed with ourselves and pride. But nevertheless, we are commanded to do it. So what in the world biblically does it look like? Well, let me tell you a Bible story. 
a Bible story about a man by the name of Joseph. Now, you don't know him by the name Joseph. He first appears in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 36. He's a man whose name is Joseph. He's born on the island of Cyprus. He is a Levite. He moves to Jerusalem. Uh, After moving to Jerusalem, he gets saved. And obviously, the guy acquires some wealth. And the reason we know that he acquired some wealth is that he was able to purchase a piece of land. And he is such an encouragement to the church that the disciples, the apostles, change his name or give him a nickname. And the nickname is Barnabas, which by interpretation means son of encouragement. Now, how is this man, Barnabas, an encourager? Well, as I said, first of all, he was an encourager in that he had a piece of land. What did he do with that? He sold the land and he gave all of the money to the church for the meeting of practical needs. That was an encouragement, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. Secondly, he was a great encouragement in the life of Saul of Tarsus or We know him better as the Apostle Paul. You remember the story of how the Apostle Paul is traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus. He has letters to apprehend, to arrest Christians, to bring them back to Jerusalem for the purpose of trying them and them being executed. But his plans were interrupted when a bright light hit him from heaven and he heard the voice of Christ saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He is converted. He goes into the city of Damascus. He is blind. After he is blinded, Ananias comes to him after three days. He prays for him, and Paul goes through the city of uh, Damascus uh, preaching the gospel for a short while, and then he escapes the city of, of Damascus in a basket. And then for the next three years, this guy goes to Arabia, not Saudi Arabia, but Arabia near Damascus. And there he is meeting directly with the Lord, and he's growing in his faith. And so now after three years, the great Apostle Paul wants to come to Jerusalem, to the mothership, to the original church to meet with the disciples. And as he arrives in Jerusalem, they say, "Uh uh-uh. We're not going to meet with you. We're not going to tell you where we meet because we do not believe that you are actually one of us. We believe that this is a trick. How does the Apostle Paul gain an audience with the church in Jerusalem? It is through the biblical doctrine of encouragement whereby Barnabas goes to the disciples and says, hey, he's the real deal. He is one of us. He has seen the Lord. And as a result of that, he gets an audience with the disciples and he spends about 15 days there with them in Jerusalem preaching the gospel. That's a wonderful thing where Barnabas, the son of encouragement, goes to bat for the apostle Paul. Here's the third example. In the book of Acts, Barnabas is sent up to a place called Antioch. When he arrives there, and the reason that there were so many Christians in Antioch is because of the persecution that was happening in Jerusalem, and Barnabas arrives in Antioch, and we we read in Acts chapter 11, verse 23, the quintessential definition of encouragement as exercised by Barnabas when it says in this verse, when he, Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. This, by definition, is what 
spiritual encouragement is. You see something, you are happy about it in your heart, and then you say something to those people that will help them. Again, let me read this verse for you because I think it really is the definition of encouragement. When he came to Antioch, he saw the grace of God, not their natural talents, but the grace of God. It is seeing that, it, it, listen, it is not just seeing that someone is articulate or seeing that someone is friendly or seeing that someone has a special talent. It is seeing how their life is made different by the grace of God, which would not be there apart from the grace of God, recognizing that God is at work. What does it say? It says, when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. It moved him in his heart, and he spoke, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So you've got those three examples. He gives money to the church. He helps the Apostle Paul have an audience with the disciples. He sees the grace of God in Antioch, and he exhorts them. And then there's another active encouragement that we see in the life of Barnabas, and that is in the life of a young man by the name of John Mark. Fast forward to Acts chapter 13. The Holy Spirit sets aside two people to go out as missionaries, Barnabas and Saul. They take with them a young man by the name of John Mark. How does that work? They leave Antioch. They sail down to Cyprus. They move across the island, spreading the gospel, and then they head north up into the Roman region of Galatia. And as they are on this missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, for no reason, we are not told the reason, it, it remains a mystery to this day, it says that John Mark decides to quit and go home. Paul and Barnabas complete the first missionary journey. They go up into Galatia. They circle around, back down, visit the churches, and they come back to Antioch. After they're in Antioch, they realize that there is a disturbance over in Jerusalem concerning whether or not Gentiles need to be circumcised. And so they go over to Jerusalem and they settle it all with what is known as the Jerusalem Council. And then they come back to Antioch. And when they're in Antioch, Paul says to Barnabas, you know what? I think we need to go back and visit those churches that we planted. And Barnabas says, you know what? I think we ought to go back and visit those churches that we planted. Let me get John Mark and we'll be on our way. And Paul said, no siree. He is not coming with us. And the reason why he's not coming with us is he quit the first time. We can't afford to take him with us again and have him quit on us again. And Paul and Barnabas have such a dispute between themselves that they have a division. And Paul gets a new partner, that is Silas, and they make their way north up to Cilicia and then back down in through Galatia. And Barnabas takes John Mark with him, and they both go down to Cyprus, where Barnabas is from. Who was right? Who was wrong? That's not really the question for today, but I will at least give an opinion. I will answer it. I think if I had to answer the question, I would say that the Apostle Paul at that time was right. The reason I say that is because Paul and Silas were commended to the grace of God and also because Luke, the author of the story, follows the story of Paul and Silas, not Barnabas and and John Mark. But nevertheless, even if I'm right, even if I'm wrong, here's what I do know. The Apostle Paul gets to the end of his life, and he is writing what is the last chapter in the last book that he will ever write, and that is 2 Timothy 
chapter 4, and in verse 11, he writes to Timothy, and he makes a request for only one person to come visit him, and that is John Mark. And he says, bring Mark with you, for he is profitable, and then these next two words are beautiful, to me for ministry. Not just turned out to be a good guy, but he is profitable to me. What is it that happened between the time when he was a young man and a quitter to the point where Paul, at the end of his life, says, I want this guy to be with me? What happened was the biblical doctrine of encouragement. And you say, okay, you, I hear these stories, but really, what is the value of these things? I mean, you just have some people who feel a little bit better about themselves, and then they, 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 they do better in their spiritual lives than they otherwise would have done. No, you're missing the big picture. Do you understand that if Paul does not get an audience with the church in Jerusalem, then he doesn't become the great apostle Paul. I hope your ecclesiology is good enough that you know that you just don't go out on your own and plant a church. You need to be sent from the local church. And in order for Paul to get the endorsement to go, he needed the approval of the apostles. How does he get that? He gets that because somebody steps in the middle as an intermediary, as an encourager, and says, hey, I believe that he knows the Lord. Now you guys need to come together. There is that encouragement. And then also, Mark never is known to us apart from the ministry of Barnabas. And you say, well, what's the big deal there? Well, here's the big deal there. There are four accounts of the life of Christ in Scripture. Matthew, Luke, John, and Mark. And without the encouragement of Barnabas in the life of Mark, then he never is entrusted. I mean, you want to talk about being entrusted. You want to, be you want to talk about, about getting an opportunity to do something which is really big for the Lord. How about this? Writing 25% of the accounts of the Lord's life. That is something which he was given an opportunity to do based upon the fact that somebody did not give up on him. So, it is a valuable doctrine. I hope you're with me on this. It is a valuable doctrine which makes a big difference in the lives of people. When I was a little boy, and I'm, I'm, I'm honestly not exaggerating now, I'm not saying this for, for effect. When I was a little boy and a young teenager, I was the worst person that I have ever known. Now, now, being a pastor since 1984, I have seen some really bad kids, and, and they might get honorable mention, but I was worse than they are. I was so bad, I was so bad that at my aunt's funeral, my aunt lived to be almost 99, a few weeks shy of 99. You live to be 99, you don't get that many people coming to your funeral. Um, and so we were burying her over in my little town of Dubois, Pennsylvania, in western Pennsylvania. This was in 2014. My Sunday school teacher from when I was a child was at that um, funeral. I don't know if she's still alive, but she herself was, was an artifact. I mean, she was, she was, she was old. 
And I'm standing at the reception afterward eating my plate of potato salad, and she walks over to me. But she's not really walking. She's sort of just shuffling. And she walks up to me, and she says, she looks at me, and she says, you were the worst child that ever attended this church. (laughs) And I'm thinking, okay, all right, that's fair. But she's going to add a but to that, and she's going to say, but it all turned out fine because now you're a pastor. No, she's walking toward me. I see her shuffling. I think she's just wanting to wish me, you know, uh, sympathy on the death of my aunt. She walks up to me, she points her finger at me, and she says, you're the worst child that ever attended this church. (laughs) She used what few steps she had left on planet Earth to tell me half a century later how bad I was. That's, that's how prolific my evil was. When I was in the sixth grade, and I wish that this would happen today because we'd have a wonderful lawsuit, here was Mrs. Fischel's desk. The rest of the students were in rows, as they should be, facing the teacher, and my desk was right beside hers, facing the rest of the students. Why? because I couldn't be released into general population. I I was that bad, and I really was that bad. I was uncontrollable. And I had a reputation in the church of being bad, and I earned that reputation. In 1977, at the age of 16, something very unusual happened to me, and that is, out of nowhere, inexplicably, the grace of God touched my heart and I came to know and love Jesus Christ and I was granted repentance and I was completely consumed with Jesus Christ and the church. All I wanted to do was be around the people of God. All I wanted to do was to sing hymns. All I wanted to do was to worship Jesus Christ and all I wanted to do with all of my heart was to serve him because I loved him so deeply. But I had a problem. My problem was I was Eddie Moore, and there wasn't a single person in the church who actually believed that my conversion was genuine except for Jerry Hoover. He was a hippie, not a hipster with tight jeans and pour-over coffee, but a hippie like with ratty jeans and ratty hair who had been saved out of the Jesus movement. As soon as he got saved, his wife left him, and so he was there to raise his two children by himself. We didn't have youth pastors back in those days in western Pennsylvania. He was the western Pennsylvania 1970s equivalent of a youth pastor, and here's what he would do. He would meet with me, and he would pray with me, and he would encourage me, and he would rebuke me, and he would teach me, and when I would call him, he would answer the phone, and he would talk to me, and he would love me, and he would have conversations with me about my passion and love for Jesus Christ. He was the one guy that I was getting encouragement from, And I can remember the date. I can remember where I was in my parents' house. It was Thursday, February 2nd, 1978. I was a wrestler in high school. That was my sport. And and that night, we were 
wrestling Brockway, and I was going to wrestle Frank Varachetti. His dad was a garbage man. He was a tough Italian kid from Brockway. He was a really good wrestler. I was very nervous about going into this match. And, and so I picked up the phone after school, and I called Jerry, and I said, I am, I am just, I'm just undone. I'm really worried about this. And he said, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 14. I remember opening my King James Version Bible to, to John 14. He goes, okay, read for me verse 27. And so I read verse 27, where Jesus said, peace I leave with you, or peace I give to you. My peace give I unto you, not as the world gives. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Here's what has happened for the last 44 years. Every time that I have been worried or nervous or distraught or bewildered or overcome, my mind has gone to John chapter 14, verse 27. But more importantly, gentlemen, what has happened for the last 44 years, every time I have felt pressed or oppressed or nervous, my mind has gone to Jesus Christ who said, peace I leave with you, my peace give I unto you. It was just the biblical doctrine of encouragement of one guy pointing me to Christ. And that's what it is. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to have a title from the church. If you point people to Jesus Christ, you are a great source of encouragement. So let me just close real quick by giving you, uh, I'm nowhere near done. And so when I say real quick, it just means that, that, that I'm moving from this point to the next point very quickly. Uh, uh, let me give you some practical ways that you can be an encourager. One of them, if you are to be an encourager, I would say that there is great value in praying with people. Now, I'm not saying pray for people, although you should pray for, for people and you must pray for people, but there is a difference between praying for someone and praying with someone and I really never knew the value, the encouraging value of praying with people until I needed someone to pray with me. I'm a pastor. I go to hospitals. I probably at this point know as much as a medical doctor about the human body because when you go to the hospital, what do you talk to people about? You talk to them about the procedure that they had or why they're there and you discuss these things. And I always sort of thought, well, this is how I earn my paycheck. I'm expected to be there. It's not that big of a deal. It's not really helping these people. I could pray for them from my office. So why am I going to the hospital to pray for these people? Because uh, it's just, okay, this is what pastors do. All right, it's what I do. I mean, I didn't mind doing it. I just didn't think I was doing anything that was that profound or that good until I myself had a hip replacement in March of 2011. And like a fool, on the night before my hip replacement, I went on YouTube and watched a hip replacement. <laughs> You don't need to do that. Like you, you don't need you don't need to see that. It's gruesome. They they actually get a saw. They saw off your femur. I mean, it's it's brutal. And so, even though I'm thinking about John fourteen twenty seven, I'm still nervous going into the surgery the next day. And as I am 
in the little cubicle. It's freezing, and I'm about to be wheeled into the operating room. I'm thankful that, and, and I'm really thankful that they do this. They ask you about 12 times who you are and what procedure is being done, which I'm very thankful for in this world of transitions because I don't want to go in as Edwin and come out as Edwina. Uh, like, I... I, I I want them to do, I want, I want the right surgery to be done. And so the, 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 the man says to me, he goes, all right, what, what's your name? And I said, Ed Moore. He said, great. I says, he said, what are we doing today? I said, you're replacing my right hip. He said, great. Would you please point to your right hip? That's this is it right here. Let me just confirm, where do you work? I said, I work at North Shore Baptist Church. He said, oh, you're, you're a pastor? I said, yes. He said, one minute. Steps outside the cubicle motions for a nurse she comes down he whispers to her he's a pastor and the woman i can still see her she's like moses before he buried the body looking to the left looking to the right sees that no one is looking closes the curtain and comes in to my little cubicle and she comes over to me and she says pastor i want to pray for you and she puts her hands on me and she leans over and in my ear she pours out her heart to god for me and it was as if someone had taken a bucket of warm water and had dumped it over my head and the peace of god that passes all understanding was guarding my heart and my mind in christ jesus and the peace that i needed to go into that surgery was supplied through the biblical doctrine of encouragement by a woman that I did not even know praying for me. When you see your brothers in Christ who are going through something, you see them walk into church and there's a despondency in their spirit, or you know that there's trouble in the household, or you know that, that maybe there's trouble paying the rent, or you know that there's something, it is one thing to say to that brother, hey, thinking about you, praying for you, love you, it's another thing altogether. It is a different universe. It is a different galaxy when you actually pray with them. You can have a wonderful ministry among the brethren. So let's remember, encourage one another and build one another up. That's one way of doing it. The second way of doing it is to give gospel reminders. You say, well, this kind of goes without saying. I mean, you're, you're, you're really being simplistic now. I mean, isn't that quite obvious? Well, I think it's, it's, it's forgotten more than you might think. Um, sometimes I'll be driving home from work, and I'll say to my wife or to my daughters, well, how was the sermon today? And they'll say, well, Dad, you, you, did, a, you did a good job. It was, was good. I think you stayed true to the text, but you, you forgot the gospel. It's like... How did I forget the gospel? I'm being paid to remember the gospel. Uh, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. That's my job. You had one job. It was, it was to remember the gospel. And so if I, as a pastor who is preaching, would inadvertently in my sermon preach the gospel in an environment where that's the one thing that you're supposed to be doing, how much more will a person who's going through like real life, when they get rocked, Sort of as Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. When life punches you in the mouth and you're reeling and, you, and you, you're not really sure what you are to do next, I guarantee you the first thing that you will forget is the gospel. And how we can help one another is to come alongside one another and say, okay, this is really tough. What you're going through right now is really difficult. 
but, but I want to remind you of some things which are true and eternal, and I want to give you some ballast to your situation, and that is God loves you, and Christ has redeemed you, and he has paid for your sins, and ultimately this is going to be okay, and it is because of the gospel. Bring the gospel back to your brothers because we are so quick to forget it. Here's another one. I believe that we need to rebuke one another, and we need to correct one another, and faithful are the wounds of a friend. That is a great form of encouragement. I had a friend when I was living in Columbia, South Carolina, who wanted to go to New York City. This is long before the days of a GPS. And he said, how do I get to New York City? I said, it's the easiest thing in the world. You just get on I-20 going east until you get to I-95, and you take that north. You drive as far as you can. You'll get to the George Washington Bridge. You'll know it when you see it. 20 east, 95 north. That's all you need to remember. The guy gets on I-20, and he starts to drive and drive and drive and drive, and finally he has to use the bathroom, and he gets off, gets back on the road, drive, 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 needs gasoline, gets off, gets gasoline, gets back on I-20, and starts driving, driving, driving. Thinks to himself, I should have seen I-95 by now. And so he gets off to ask for directions in Birmingham, Alabama. He had been going in the wrong direction. What does encouragement look like when someone is driving in the wrong direction? Oh, brother, man, you're doing a good job. You're under the speed limit. You're using your blinkers. You're using your rearview mirror. You got your seatbelt on. You're doing a good job. No. No, encouragement says get off and turn around. You, you, you see someone who is, who, is, who is caught in the throes of sin or is drifting in the direction of sin and, 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 they're, they're, and they're, they're destroying their life. You're not encouraging them by saying, God bless you. You are encouraging them by telling them to repent and turn around. And so, faithful are the wounds of a friend. We encourage one another by rebuking one another. The one who loves you will tell you the truth. Let me give you two more. We encourage one another by meeting practical needs. John the Baptist said, the one who has two needs to give to the one who has none. So I'm in Columbia, South Carolina. My wife is pregnant with our first son. I'm working at a job um, renting apartments for $5 an hour. Um, we're living on government cheese and government rice at this point, and I was driving at the time a 1976 Buick Skylark, a car of which my father said, Ed, take that car, wash it, and then burn it, because it's not even worthy to be burned at this point. It was a bomb. And one of the deacons from our church, this is, this is 31 years ago, one of the deacons from our church, Eric Slagle, calls me up at my workplace and said, I need to borrow your car. And I'm thinking, wow, how hard up would you need to be to borrow this car? He comes by on his lunch hour, takes my keys, takes my car, and an hour and 15 minutes he comes back, later he comes back and I have four new tires on my car. And I wept. I wept, not because, and the tires were bald, they were dangerous i'm about to have a baby and and we are we are broke that's 31 years ago 
I cannot tell you how, and, and as long as God gives me my mind, 31 years later, that act of encouragement by simply sticking four tires on my car has stuck with me to this day, and it has been a 31-year blessing to me. You know, I mean, we're living in a really practical world, and you've got a guy like Barnabas, and he realizes that the widows don't have enough to eat. He doesn't say be warmed and be filled, but he takes a piece of land that he owns, he sells it, and he gives the money, and lays it at the apostles' feet. How can we say that we love God when we see our brother in need and we do not open our heart up to him? You can be a real encouragement in a very practical way. But everything I said up to this point really is not what I wanted to say. It's all been uh, sort of superfluous up to uh, what my main point now is, and that is this. The main way that you can be a blessing to your church and advance the kingdom of God is if you see something, say something. If you see something, say something. Several years ago, I'm at a pastor's conference, and there's a young man who's preaching, and he's he's a young pastor, but boy, he's good. He's good. And after the sermon, I sent him a text. It was pretty meaningless to me. I just said, hey, good job. Handled the text very well. I'm proud of you. Send. That was it. That was it. That was all that happened. Six months later, we're at another conference together, and we're preaching together, and he preached again. And once again, not surprisingly, he did a really good job. So I send him another text while he's preaching. Wow, you're really knocking it out of the park today. I am so proud of you. Great job. Send. He comes up to me immediately after that service. And he says, I can't take this. I don't know how to process it. My father is not a Christian. And he said, never once in my life has any man ever told me that he was proud of me. And now you have done it twice, and I don't know what to do with the information. And I thought to myself, why? What's going on in the church? That people are so selfish with their words. Like, why are you holding your words back from from saying anything when you see the grace of God? This was a young man that was a drug dealer. And God saved him and gifted him. And now he's feeding the sheep of God. How difficult is it to say, I see the grace of God in you. And I'm proud of you. And you're doing a good job. What are we holding our words back for? I'm not talking about flattering people because because I think when you look at people's natural talents and you flatter them, that's actually not giving glory to God. I think that that is actually inflating a person. I'm talking about seeing the grace of God in someone and then saying something. I see God at work in you and I'm proud of you. You're doing a good job. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I mean, for crying out loud, if you go into the Waffle House where the waitress may or may not have teeth and she is serving you and you have a water glass there and it is half full and she fills it up to the top, you will turn to her and you will say, thank you. 
how in the world then do we see our brothers and sisters doing kingdom work and we say nothing? We say nothing. This applies to your pastor and to those that are serving you in this church. If they stand at the pulpit, and they, they, don't, they, don't, they don't have to be Spurgeon. If they are faithful to the text and they feed your soul, how is it that you do not even acknowledge that the sermon even happened? Would it be that difficult to say, thank you, that was a blessing to me? Or if they are serving you in some way, to say to them, thank you for the way that you serve. Or you see a woman walking into the church. Maybe she's a widow. Maybe her husband has left her. Maybe she's doing the best that she can. And she's not getting any kind of encouragement at home. And she comes slapping into the church carrying a couple of kids. Would it be that difficult to walk up to her and to say, you know what? Not really sure of everything that's going on in your life. But the fact that you made it here encourages my heart. God bless you. Keep pressing on. Or you see someone that you know is struggling with sin, and you know that they've had a history with this sin, but now they're getting a season of victory. Would it be that hard just to say, press on, don't quit, I see the grace of God in you? Why do we hold back our words from those whom God is working in when it really is God at work? encourage one another and build one another up. If you see something, say something. Because here's basically what's happening in the church in America today. You have a bunch of people who have their eyes closed and they are saying, Marco, Marco, Marco. And they're they're like moving blindly in a direction. And you know what they're hearing? Nothing, nothing. You know what they need? They need another voice that says, Polo, Polo, come on. You're moving in the right direction. Don't quit. Don't you dare quit. Press on. Nope, a little bit to the left. Come on, you're, you're, you're out of line there. Keep coming that way. Marco, Polo, if you see something, say something. Therefore, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, encourage one another and build one another up. Father in heaven, please help these men. Lord, even as they leave here today to be encouraging to their wives and to their children and to their pastors and to fellow believers, Lord, for the sake of Jesus Christ and the advancement of the gospel, would you make these men encouragers? This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.